Welcome to True Crime Mysteries, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart of the world's most gripping true crime stories. I'm your host, Megan, and I've spent years researching, investigating, and seeking the truth in dark corners where most people dare not look. Each week, we'll delve into a new case, peeling back layers of mystery, law, and human behavior. Together, we'll explore the intricate webs woven by those who break society's most sacred laws. We'll cover cold cases, missing persons, and recently uncovered serial killers, and instances where DNA has identified a killer. Join us as we journey back in the past, bring decade-old cases to life, and explore the dark, tragic, and inexplicable. And maybe find a light of justice at the end of the tunnel. This is True Crime Mysteries. Today, we're discussing the Canadian serial killer that escaped prison and plagued a small community in New Brunswick, exacting revenge on the community that he felt betrayed him. Let's get into it. The Miramichi on the coast of New Brunswick is renowned for its earnest beauty and lush greenery, and as soon as the first rays of sunlight glint brightly on the clear waters of the Miramichi River, the streets would buzz with life and joy as the residents began their daily routine. It was a peaceful community where people normally didn't lock their doors, they left their cars unlocked, and slept without worry. Until one day, it wasn't. In the late 1980s, the sense of security became a thing of the past when a reign of terror began after a series of heinous crimes committed by a man without mercy. A man who loathed society and believed it was responsible for how his life turned out. On June 21, 1986, in the early morning hours, a frantic 911 call came to dispatchers. The victim, Mary Glendening, had been beaten severely and discovered her husband had been murdered. They owned a convenience store, which was attached to their home, and she detailed that she and her husband had heard a break-in, and when they confronted the robbers, they were viciously attacked. She had lost consciousness, and her attacker likely thought she was dead. While talking to the 911 operator, she identified her attacker, Miramichi local and regular customer Alan Legere, and two younger men. With Mary's description and the evidence left behind, the police had no trouble finding the perpetrators. The three were arrested and charged with second-degree murder. Alan Joseph Legere was born on February 13, 1948 to a low-income family living in Chatham Head, a neighborhood of the Miramichi. Not only did Legere grow up in poverty, but he was surrounded by a significant amount of crime. The area was known for thefts, assaults, and break-ins, and it was the kind of environment where he discovered his own taste for criminal acts. Alan's father wasn't in the picture from an early age. He'd walked out on his family, leaving behind three small children and a single mother to fend for them. Alan had a rough upbringing, his family had always struggled with financial difficulties, and other children made fun of him and his siblings for being fatherless. That made Alan feel like an outcast. He leaned heavily on his older brother, who he looked up to. Alan was also seen as a Jacqueline Hyde-type character, even as a child. To those he was fond of, he was seen as a sweet, charming, and lovely child. But those he disliked described him as a spiteful, cruel little boy. This would go on to follow him into adulthood where to one person he was charming and incredibly friendly, and to the next he would be loathsome and frightening. He would often talk to his mother about resenting the local community for turning its back on them. His mother tried many times to talk him out of these negative thoughts, but her attempts were always futile, 
and it was the beginning of Alan's cycle of hatred and disdain towards society. Alan plagued his community from a young age. He would break into homes, sometimes just to see if he could do it, and sometimes he would steal things, food, jewelry, and money. He had been well known by law enforcement and had been in and out of jail throughout his youth. He was known in the community as being unpredictably violent. The Legere family would change forever when Alan's older brother would be hit by a truck while crossing a bridge. Alan's mother, enraged with grief, turned that anger towards Alan, frequently telling him that the wrong son had been killed and it should have been him. This would be a final straw for Alan. He had lost his brother, his confidant, and his only friend, and he felt his mother had betrayed him with her vitriol. His community feared him because of his violent nature and petty crimes, and he felt he wasn't wanted by anyone. Alan decided to leave Chatham when he was 16. He moved a thousand kilometers away to Winchester, Ontario, a town located about an hour south of Ottawa. He felt it was a fresh start and an opportunity to reinvent himself. He started working as a car salesman, his only ever legitimate job. But it wouldn't take long for him to realize that going to work every day wasn't as lucrative as petty crime. He also struggled in the sales environment. He started looking for other ways to earn easy money and eventually resorted to a life of crime, petty theft becoming his way of rebelling against a society that had shunned him. He went back to breaking into homes and stealing cash and valuables. Sometimes he would get caught in the act, resulting in him getting beaten and ridiculed, something that further fueled his animosity towards the community. It's also where he learned to target only those who were more vulnerable, seniors, people with disabilities, and those who were less likely to fight back. While he was living in Ontario, he met a woman and got married. The couple had two children together, but Alan was discovered to have several affairs, and the two would soon divorce after a few years. By his mid-thirties, Alan was tired of trying to fit in. He was working a job he hated, and his co-workers were making fun of him, so shortly after turning 37, he quit his job and moved to an area in the Miramichi Valley called the Black River Bridge. It was there that he met John and Mary Glendenning. They were a lovely couple who owned a small shop and lived above it. The locals loved them. They'd open the shop early in the morning to meet and chat with their customers. One of them was Alan Legere. In the years in his absence, his reputation as a youth had dissipated somewhat. People had been willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, hoping to believe that he had outgrown his proclivity for trouble. They didn't know about his troubles in Ontario. Alan had taken a special interest in the Glendennings upon seeing the safe in their shop. He also learned from John that they weren't keeping their savings in a bank. He started to plan a robbery. He thought it was going to be a pretty straightforward job. He'd seen the safe, he knew where it was, and John was a 66-year-old man who didn't stand a chance against Alan, who was nearly six feet tall. But Alan's plan included one tricky part. He wanted to steal the entire safe and take it to a hiding place so he spent some time looking for accomplices to help him break into the shop and carry the safe. He found his match in 18-year-old Todd Machette and 19-year-old Scott Curtis, who had a long history of petty theft despite their young age. On the night of June 21, 1986, the trio decided to put their seemingly perfect plan into motion. They broke into the shop, found the fuse box, and cut the power. Until then, the plan was going smoothly, but when they reached the place where the safe was supposed to be kept, they were shocked to find it was gone. They decided to search for it upstairs, but found themselves face to face with John and Mary, who, unfortunately for them, were still awake. 
They ambushed John and beat him furiously until he was all bloodied and battered. They did the same to Mary, and she'd also been sexually assaulted. Then the three decided to flee the scene after realizing the mess they made, leaving the Glendennings for dead. They hadn't anticipated anyone finding the bodies until morning, and they certainly had no idea that Mary had survived the attack. After the three were arrested, they were held while they were waiting trial. During the trial, Alan claimed that even though he was present at the scene, he never participated in the assault. But of course, he didn't fool the jury and was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, with the possibility of parole after 18 years. Alan thought he didn't deserve to be in prison, which made the hatred he already harbored for the community reach new heights. He filed two unsuccessful appeals before realizing he wouldn't be able to secure freedom legally. While in prison, he'd become a model prisoner. Shockingly, he didn't get into any trouble there. He worked out, read books, got along with other inmates, and did his work pleasantly. He built up a friendly relationship with prison workers. What they didn't realize was Legere was playing long con and was working on his prison escape. On May 3, 1989, Alan was escorted to the Dr. George L. Dumont University Hospital in Moncton, Ontario, to be treated for a bad ear infection. At the time, no one knew that Alan had devised a plan to make his infection so bad it was impossible to be treated at the prison infirmary. He would poke his ear with metal objects and even pour his own urine into it to make the infection worse. Once in the hospital, Alan asked the prison guards to allow him to use the washroom. The guards didn't see it as an issue, and he was still shackled at the hands and feet, so they didn't think much of it. They let him go into the washroom, unsupervised. Legere took the opportunity to put a well-thought-out plan into action. Alan fashioned a piece of metal into a handcuff key and had hidden it on his person. He also had a metal antenna from his prison-issued TV set which was concealed within his body. Alan asked the guards by the door for toilet paper to buy himself enough time to unlock the handcuffs and shackles. Then he used the antenna, which he fashioned into a shiv, to threaten the guards before making a run for it. The guards didn't have any weapons on them, they only had pepper spray, which hadn't done much as they chased Legere through the hospital. Legere had prepared for this physically, and he'd been able to easily outpace the guards. Outside the hospital, Peggy Olive was just exiting her car when she was viciously put back into it by none other than Alan Legere, who hijacked the car and kidnapped her. He ordered her to drive, and the terrified Peggy drove him to where he wanted to go. Eventually, he allowed her to pull over and get out of the car. He then assured her that he wouldn't harm her car, thanked her, and then took off. He dumped the vehicle outside of Moncton. After his escape, Alan Legere wasted no time getting back into committing crimes. On May 7th, he was suspected of attacking a man named Max Ramsey, who was found beaten after his car and wallet were stolen. The car was later found in a neighboring town. And on May 10th, a woman's house was broken into, and she found that all her jewelry was gone. A contingency plan was put into motion by the police, Roadblocks were set up, officers were roaming the streets, and helicopters were surveying the area from above. The manhunt was on, but Alan Legere was nowhere to be found, and the last place they thought to look for Alan was back at the Miramichi. On May 29th, less than four weeks after his escape, 
Alan Leger broke into a small convenience store owned by Annie Flam and her sister-in-law, Nina. Both women were in their 80s. He first found Annie alone and demanded money from her. Then he tied her up and beat her repeatedly with a blunt object right in the face, breaking her jaw. He then sexually assaulted her before ending her life with one last blow to the head. By then, Nina had woken up and went to check up on her sister. Leger beat and sexually assaulted her too, until she faked losing consciousness, making him assume she was dead. He carried her to her room and tucked her into bed. Then he set the house on fire and stood outside, watching as the angry fires consumed the house. When Nina noticed the house was on fire, she ran to the door and she was pushed back into the house by Alan, who was still waiting outside. Patrolling officers were passing by the house when they saw the blazing flames and called the fire department. When the firefighters and paramedics arrived at the scene, they found the lifeless body of Annie Flam and the unconscious Nina Flam. They pulled Nina out in time, but she had second-degree burns on 70% of her body and had to be kept on a respirator. When they were able to question her, she told them that her attacker had a chain around his waist and was rambling about how society had failed him. For the police, a chain around his waist meant one thing. The culprit had to be an escaped prisoner. However, at the time, there were two more fugitives other than Alan Legere that had escaped. Brothers David and John Tanasichuk escaped from prison on May 22nd, but the police shortly found them in a hunting camp. And after being questioned about the Flam murder, they were eliminated as suspects, leaving Alan Legere as the prime suspect. RCMP officer Kevin Mole was called into the case. He took a semen sample from the surviving victim and wanted to prove that it belonged to Legere. However, DNA analysis was still a new science, and it had only been used in the U.S. and Britain. On June 1st, Joe Irving chased an intruder who tried to break into his house through multiple yards before losing him. The following day, a Chatham contractor found a pair of glasses very close to where Irving had lost track of the intruder. Officer Kevin Mole took the glasses to an optometrist, who confirmed that they were in the same style, size, and prescription Legere was wearing when he escaped prison. On September 30th, a man was shot in the back by a shotgun, and on the following day, a couple were beaten in their home. It was believed that Legere committed these crimes because they took place near a police station, and they thought that Legere was the only one bold enough to attack people so close to law enforcement. However, at that time, Alan Legere wasn't the only one stirring the pot around the Miramichi region. Allard Villeneuve of Newcastle was arrested and charged with those two attacks. Law enforcement now had the issue of copycat killers. Now around October, the Supreme Court of Canada shut down another appeal attempt from Alan Legere, saying they couldn't provide a ruling while the accused was unlawfully at large. Ironically, Legere thought he stood a chance of winning the appeal while he was on the run. This proves how delusional and self-entitled Legere was. A psychologist at the Atlantic Institution referred to him as a classic psychopath. He had no remorse and thought he shouldn't be incriminated or imprisoned for anything he did. According to Legere, it was the community who should be blamed. On Friday, the 13th of October, Legere struck again. Both in their 50s, sisters Donna and Linda Donnie were murdered in their home, which was later set on fire. Legere unscrewed the light bulbs, disconnected the telephone lines, and picked the lock on the back door. 
Then he tied up Linda, made her watch as he sexually assaulted and tortured her sister. The autopsy results showed that Donna had been tortured and beat on the head until she died. Afterwards, the same fate befell Linda. When the police found the two bodies, they had a hard time telling them apart because of how badly and beaten and burned they were. They ended up identifying them through their size. The crime scene was identical to the first one, and law enforcement immediately suspected Alan Legere, and they realized Legere's M.O. and signature were leaving behind a trail of destruction and mayhem. By then, the Miramichi was in total panic. People stopped going out, traffic diminished, and those that left their doors unlocked for years began installing security systems and lights in their home to deter Legere from choosing them as a target. As a result, this whole system was given the name the Legere Lights. That year, Halloween was also cancelled, as the last thing police wanted were people roaming the streets in masks, making it a golden opportunity for Legere to mingle and strike again. Legere knew the Miramichi area well, making the police feel like they were chasing a ghost lurking in the shadows. Lead detective commented saying that he was able to slip under the radar and commit another crime, and us not able to stop that, it was a tremendous feeling of helplessness. On November 14th, Roman Catholic priest James Smith left the Miramichi hospital at 5pm and went back to the rectory where he lived. At 9pm, a neighbor saw him standing on his patio looking around as if he'd heard something. This was the last time anyone had seen him alive. The following day, the priest was supposed to hold service. But when he failed to show up, people grew concerned as they knew the father to always be punctual. So they decided to check his house, and nothing would have ever prepared them for what they found inside. Even the police officers described the crime scene as a scene from hell. Blood was everywhere. Father Smith had a massive cut on his chest. His eyes were gouged out. Three of his teeth were broken, and someone had tried to rip out his tongue. And the autopsy report revealed that his rib cage had been separated from his sternum, meaning that whoever killed him had stood up on his chest with both feet and jumped up and down forcefully. They even discovered that the killer had the audacity to spend the night at the father's house after committing his heinous crime. He ate, washed his boots, put plastic bags on his feet to keep them dry, and changed his bloody clothes, and even answered the phone, telling the caller they'd gotten the wrong number. A further inspection of the crime scene led them to discover lots of DNA and hair samples that they were able to later confirm belonged to Alan Legere. They also found bloody footprints that led them to the garage, where they discovered that Father Smith's car had been stolen. Finally, they tracked the car to a train station where a cashier told them that the man matching Legere's description had purchased a ticket to Montreal. The police immediately contacted the Quebec authorities and told them to stop the train and search its passengers. They gave them Legere's mugshot and told them to check for a tattoo of an eagle on the right forearm. One passenger slightly resembled the description, yet he appeared much smaller and was clean-shaven with short hair. On the other hand, Legere looked disheveled and rugged in the mugshot. The passenger told him his name was Fernand Servois. They asked him to roll up his sleeve, and there was no tattoo, so they let him go. However, that man was in fact Legere, who had lost a lot of weight as a result of being on the run, and the description given to the police had an error. The eagle tattoo was actually on his left arm. Legere had slipped through their fingers again, and the manhunt expanded countrywide. 
At this time, Crime Stoppers put an award for $50,000 for information leading to his arrest. On November 23rd, a St. John taxi driver was stopped by a man wanting to go to Moncton. The driver called the dispatcher and agreed to the ride when he found out the fare was $100. But once the man was inside the taxi, he revealed a gun and said, I'm the one they're looking for. I'm Alan Legere. It was a snowy night, and the icy roads led the cab driver to lose control of the car and crash into a snowbank. Alan ordered the driver out of the car and took him hostage. Then he hid the gun and managed to stop a car driven by a woman and asked her to help them. Being a good Samaritan, the woman agreed to give them a ride, and once they entered the vehicle, Legere showed his gun and revealed his identity to her. Little did he know, she was actually an off-duty RCMP officer. She drove for a while towards Moncton, but had to stop for gas. Legere took the car keys, filled the tank, and walked into the store to pay the $15 for gas. At the same time, Officer Michelle Mercer used the spare key she was hiding and drove away before Legere could catch up to them. And in the early hours of November 24th, she walked into the nearest RCMP department and reported everything that had happened. They wasted no time setting up roadblocks and sent officers to the streets. Legere stopped a trucker and ordered the driver at gunpoint to take him to the airport. Legere told the trucker to use a back road, thinking that by doing this, he was going to avoid the police. However, that alerted another trucker who knew that large trucks couldn't use those back roads, and he notified police, and they managed to catch up with the truck after a 30-minute chase. Some law enforcement had expected a gun show, but once cornered, Alan Legere tossed the gun out of the window, raised his arms, and surrendered without any resistance. Alan Legere wanted to be perceived as a strong, powerful, and competent man, but he could only display his violence and aggression towards people weaker than him, and he wasn't willing to fight several armed officers. On August 13, 1990, Legere was sentenced to nine years for his escape and the kidnapping of Peggy Olive. They were to be served concurrently with the original life sentence he received for the Glendenny murder. And on November 20, 1990, he stood trial for four counts of first-degree murder where DNA evidence was admitted to the courts for the first time in Canadian history. A year later, on November 3, 1991, Alan Legere was found guilty of all murder charges and was sentenced to life imprisonment without the eligibility for parole for 25 years. In 2020, he made a request for day parole, and in 2021, during his parole hearing, he said he couldn't fathom why the community refused to forgive him. He also said that he didn't see himself as a violent person. Needless to say, his parole was denied. Today, Alan Legere is 74 years old and living behind bars of a maximum security prison in Edmonton, Alberta. He has little to no hope of ever seeing the outside of its walls. Well, folks... We've reached the end of another gripping episode here on True Crime Mysteries. Thank you for joining me as we delve deep into the complexities of today's case. Before we go, let's not forget the human element in these stories. The victims, their families, and sometimes even the perpetrators are all part of a larger societal puzzle that we're trying to understand. While we explore these cases, it's crucial to remember the impact on real lives and communities. If you want to keep up with our weekly investigations, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are captivated by these stories as we are, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your support helps us bring more unsolved mysteries and untold stories to light. With that being said, stay curious, stay vigilant, and most importantly, stay safe. 
Till next week, good night.